Uh, as Todd said, man, I, I'm really thankful to look out and see you guys here today. It really is an encouragement to my heart, to John's heart. And, and honestly, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why you came today. I don't know if it's because you're wanting to equip yourself in this area. I don't know if it's because you're wanting counseling yourself or if people around you are hurting and in need or if maybe you're a home group leader and we just made you come. I don't know. But regardless, I'm thankful that you're here. And I'm excited. Uh, it's going to be about an hour and a half. Todd said an hour. That's incorrect. Hopefully your expectations were set for that when you signed up and it said till 2.15. But uh, for the next hour and a half to really unpack some of these things with you, with John. And, uh, and so for us as... That's kind of bad, isn't it? Work that for us is uh, is this still really bad? Pretty bad. We okay? Okay. As uh, Todd kind of said, for us, for John and I, man, this, these truths that we're going to unpack today are literally game changers for us. I mean, they they change the way that we view life, the way we view the Lord, the way we minister, the way we parent, the way we husband. Everything it filters through every sphere and angle of life, and so. For us, man, there's nothing more critical, I feel like, that we could talk about today than how to apply the gospel into life. And, and for me, I really began to see this first in seminary, going through a biblical counseling certification, and they, they really began to unpack a different way of viewing how to minister. And I sat under that, and the Lord just, just rocked me. And then I got to sit under a church that really walked this out in a healthy way for four years, and and how beautiful it was to be under authority and to be a home group leader myself and to do these things under a church that really understood what it meant to hold out the gospel as the solution to everything. And so, man, this, this is a huge part of my story. I think it's important for us just to define where we're going to go today. So there is no way in an hour and a half for us to unpack the, the whole landscape of biblical counseling. And that's a huge arena, a huge sphere, and we're not going to get there. We're not going to address all the issues that there are to address. That's really bad. What we're going to... Just don't breathe. Thank you. That's a great, great idea. So what we're going to do instead uh, is really just give you the high-level framework for how to filter things. We want to give you the principles on which to stand. And then, actually, I've got all of your email addresses if you signed up. And so what we want to do, what John and I want to do, is we want to take one counseling category per month and resource and equip you. And so you see that on the back of one of your papers, kind of 12 different categories that we want to just fuel you with ongoing. And if you don't want to get those emails, you just let me know. Not a big deal. But we're going to shoot resources your way. We want you to be further equipped. Things like anxiety and depression, anger, addictions, abuse, marriage, all these things. We're not going to get into those things in depth today. But we want to do that further and follow up. And so that's what that will look like. But today we just want to give you the grid. And, and, and it starts with understanding that all of us are broken. We kind of get that. I don't really need to unpack that for you because I think everyone in this room knows that they themselves are fundamentally flawed and that everyone around us has junk too. Like I don't have to convince you of that. You know that. Even myself, uh, back up a couple days, Thursday, I had to ask for forgiveness to two separate people for two separate things on the same day that were, that were not okay, that I hurt people. We all are broken. It's just, it's just around us. We know that. And that's what, exactly what counseling seeks to address, right? So counseling is going to look at this brokenness and start asking the question, okay, why did it come about and how are we going to solve it? What's the possible 
remedy for it? How do we address it? What's underneath that and what's the answer? This is how I would define counseling. And this is a very uh, non-academic definition, so very simplistic. But at its core, counseling is the process of diagnosing human problems and prescribing possible remedies. Let me say that again. At, at its core, counseling is the process of diagnosing human problems. So looking and identifying there is a problem here and then coming on the backside of that and prescribing a possible remedy. So in order to identify a problem, you've got to be discerning, you've got to listen, you've got to have wisdom, you've got to hear and be intuitive, and then to be able to give the actual right remedy and solution, then you've got to be able to provide direction and care and teach and exhort. And so both of these things are happening in the counseling process. Now how that's done, though, varies massively. What's the starting point? What's the foundational authority for that? How much correction is done versus how much comfort is done? What does it look like to actually see success? How do you define change or restoration? What's the goal? All these things are going to vary widely across the spectrum of counseling, and we're going to get into that. And I'm going to show you some different methods and, and spectrum of counseling, but, but there's one truth I want to start with just to, to get you to know. And I think you know this, but I just want to outright say it to you. And that's this. You are a counselor. You are a counselor right now. You're going, hold up, Tyler. I don't get paid to talk in, in a room across a desk from someone about their problems. I don't have my LPC, or maybe some of you do, I don't know. Um, but I, I'm not a counselor, trust me. I'm just a home group. I'm just here. No, you are a counselor. Maybe, maybe you're not a formal counselor in a formalized professional sense, but you are a counselor. Every one of us, every day, is counseling usually to yourself. That's called talking to yourself, right? Like we counsel ourselves constantly. We're identifying problems that happen throughout the day. Why do I feel sad? Why am I upset? Why is this wrong? Why did that person do that? We're accessing, we're making judgments, and then we are processing through what needs to be fixed. We do it every day. We're doing it to ourselves, to our family. That's what it means to be a counselor, and you are a counselor. The question is not if you're a counselor or not. The question, of course, is are we good ones? Are we good counselors? We can't avoid counseling. So hopefully today is a step towards that. And really the first thing that we need to do is we need to zoom out. We need to get a historical background of the counseling field. Like that's what we need to do. And so we're going to do that for just a brief few minutes of zooming out and going, how did we develop, how do we get to where we're at today? What does this counseling framework and landscape even look like? And this is, again, going to be super simple and brief. But basically, the, the first 1,900 years or so since Christ's time in the church, uh, we know a couple things about counseling. And that's one, that the location that counseling occurred was the church. You had a problem, you sought help in the church. That's where you went. Uh, this was just called pastoral care. That was what counseling was called, pastoral care. So if you're a pastor, you have on one hand pastoral preaching. That's a part of your duty, your role. And then on the other hand, you have pastoral care to actually walk with and minister to the people in your church through the problems and hurts and, and joys and everything of life. And so that's what pastoral care meant. In fact, uh, there's a passage, Acts 20, 28, that speaks to this, I think, and gives us a good framework for what this pastoral care looks like biblically. Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he's saying his farewell to them. And as he's doing that, he kind of charges them as elders to tend the flock that they are over. And here's what it says in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And he goes on to talk about how wolves will come in and they're going to distort what you teach and they're going to drag people away into their sinful desires. But yet, the elder, the, the overseer, is to care for the church of God. That, that word care for in Greek, poimen, literally means to shepherd. In Latin, pastor. That's where we get pastor. Right there in that, that verse, to care for. That's what pastoral care was. You feed, you nourish, you protect the flock. You tend to them when they're ailing. And this pastoral care, of course, was done on the basis of Scripture. So for the first 1900 years, the foundation was Scripture. Scripture, virtually all Christians, I mean, of course, it wasn't practiced well. I'm not saying that it was practiced well all the time. But the Scripture was the agreed-upon foundation and basis to treat human problems and suffering. Whatever the problem was of the human condition, Scriptures are foundational and sufficient to treat it. But then a shift came. 1800s, you may have heard of the guy, Sigmund Freud. And the rise of modern psychology comes about. So, as these secular psychologies are birthed and developed, we see in a pretty short amount of time that these historical categories, creation, fall, redemption, start to get replaced with like mental illness, mental health, disease, different terminology, different categories. And the main effect of that really was, was that God ends up getting removed from the equation. So no more talk about sin, no more talk about uh, a savior, no more talk about eternal life, no, no necessity for that. But rather the solution now to our problems lies within the person themselves, actually. And that's what counseling was supposed to do. It was supposed to draw the problem out of the person. And so as these theories kind of begin to, to grow and rise in culture, obviously it's going to impact the church. It started with the seminaries, and so pastoral counseling and, and equipping in the seminary level quickly turned into, we're going to outsource that. We're going to keep the Bible as the foundation for pastoral preaching, but when it comes to pastoral care, we're, we're going to start outsourcing that to different psychologies or bringing people in to do that training. There was a big vacuum that was, that was really kind of birthed in the church in the seminary. And that vacuum, of course, was filled by a lot of different things. And those things obviously minimized the redemptive story of the gospel. That, of course, then begins to trickle down in the church, right? And the church ends up punting kind of on this responsibility to care for people in this kind of counseling way. Why does that happen? Well, here's, I think, a few reasons why the church begins to outsource and punt on that responsibility that it had had for 1,900 years. Number one, I think, is inadequacy. I think a lot of church leaders felt inadequate and, and still do. With, you know, the professionalization of psychology coming, there, there begins to be this, we don't feel adequate to be able to handle that. I don't have training for that. I don't have a degree for that. I'm not sure. That sounds very complex. And so we, as pastors and church leaders, I, begin, I think begin to feel like, I, I can't speak to that. And then I think, not only do they not feel the authority, but I, then I think then the, there was a massive culture shift changing as well. And I think then you see the members of the church going, okay, well, if they don't feel confident, this person over here feels very confident to answer my questions and help me with my needs. And so we begin to seek help outside the church. They seem to have an answer. 
And not only that, I mean, we got to be honest. Our culture has become increasingly post-Christian. So I know we say in America that we're a Christian culture. We're not. We're, we're post-Christian. It is no longer the cultural influence. It, we're not there anymore, and we need to accept that. And so this is just kind of all coming in at the same time. And another factor, I feel like, is the medical overlap. So as science develops in the medical arena, uh, some difficult problems um, that have a lot of mental composition to them. I think then it's more of a gray area. It's not as black and white. And so I think a lot of pastors and church leaders begin to feel, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the authority to be able to speak to that. In response to all this happening, there's a kind of a kickback response and kind of a kickback reaction, and that's the biblical counseling movement. It starts in the 1960s. A guy named Jay Adams really was the pioneer for it, and his obvious whole goal was to challenge the church on the way that they thought about problems and how to address problems. Let's get back to the scriptures. Let's make that primary once again because they're adequate and sufficient. And so this counseling movement emerges, and, and of course all along there's always this thought, how much psychology do we incorporate, can we use? And, um, and then as biblical counseling has developed over the last several decades, I mean I think there's been a, an increase in the, the sensitivity uh, level of human suffering, seeing different dynamics of the motivation, the centrality of the gospel. It has been refined and honed, but it started in the 60s with this, let's get back to the scriptures. Let's reclaim not only the foundation being biblical, but also the context being the church. So, there is a brief unpacking of, of counseling, how we got here today. I know I left a lot out. But what I want you to see is that two authorities really emerge there. Two authorities. And there's a lot of room on on the spectrum between these authorities of scripture and psychology, there's a lot of room in between. And we're going to look at some of those methods and stuff that are in between, but right now I just want to unpack each of those authorities real quick. And so on, on the one hand, I want to label modern psychology as the wisdom of man. That might offend some of you, but, but that's what it is. It is the wisdom of man, and I want to unpack that a little bit. From a scientific and more formal arena of counseling, here's how I would define modern psychology. We would say man's scientific attempt from the study of humans to understand people, problems, influences, suffering, behavior, motives, and change processes. That's what psychology sets out to answer. We're going to study human behavior, human thinking, and we're going to understand people, problems, influences, suffering, behavior, motives, and change processes. There's a lot of categories in psychology. You guys probably know this already. I'm going to run through a brief uh, couple of them that are, are some of the major ones. Just to give you an example of this is how psychology works. One of the major categories is cognitive behavioral. Now, if I'm going to lose you here for a little bit, don't worry. I'm going to come right back to a little more ground level. But cognitive behavioral is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to say basically the problems that we experience as as humans are the result of wrong thinking and unwise behavior. So then, the prescription to that then is we've got to reprogram the way we think. If we do that, then we're going to reprogram the way we behave. That's how you get control of your emotions and your actions change the way you think. Second major category, object relations. This is going to identify that the main problem that we experience as humans are all rooted essentially in a inadequate love attachment relationship. A missing relationship is there. Sometimes in childhood, sometimes in our past, sometimes a, a failed relationship even as we're older when we got rejected, but 
in essence, we need the solution is to receive better love, uh, healthy relationships, and stressing positive emotions. That's really going to be what the answer is found in. That's object relations theory of psychology. And the third is a, is a big one, humanistic psychology. Uh, this doesn't say that the problem lies with thinking. It doesn't say the problem lies with emotions and relationships. It says the problem lies with your will. That, that we as humans don't take responsibility for things. And so the answer is to look at our needs, be able to identify what it is you need, and then go get it. Own up, take care of it, take responsibility, and go make it happen. Take for it yourself. So, that's more the scientific formal arena. The more popular arena that, that maybe we're going to operate on, I want to identify a major force that affects the way you and I counsel and think about people. And I'm going to call it a term that, that uh, some sociologists used a few years back and call it um, moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, that's a big word, Tyler. It is a big word. We'll unpack it. Don't worry. This is what two sociologists found as they began to study American culture. I said it already. 77% of Americans claim they're Christian. But this is what they found to be the religion of America. is moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic. It's up there. There we go. Being a good person is what life's about and ultimately what appeases God. If you're a good person, you go to heaven. If you're not a good person, then you're probably not going to go to heaven. So the goal of life, then, of course, is to be a good person. Make sure you... And, and if you don't do good things, just make sure they don't harm other people, you know. But a little bit in moderation is okay. But overall, make sure you're a good person and God will be okay with you. Therapeutic goal in life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. This is our therapeutic culture. If I don't feel, if you feel good about something, then it's good. If you feel good about it, then I'm, I'm good because I want you to feel good. I want you to be happy. And that's ultimately what we're after. This is where self-help comes from. This is where, how we better oneself through our own means. That, at the end of the day, is, is what it's all about. And deism is just a religious term about the fact that a God who is impersonal or distant who's removed himself. And so what that means functionally is that you and I only call in God when we need him. He's the special ops force, right? Something bad going on in my life, I better pray. I better ask God to come in and fix this for me. So what they found is that this is what Americans operate on. Is this right here. This is what the majority of Americans generally operate on. They may call it Christianity, but obviously this is a morphed version. It's a perverted gospel. It is not in the gospel. In both of those, psychology and more the just cultural, moralistic, therapeutic deism, there is something also, a third force, that is really attacking us, and that is postmodern thought. So psychology was born out of a modern thought, right? It's an empirical science. But postmodern thought is what swarms us today. It's what influences the way we think. And postmodern, at its core, is going to say that truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. What you say is true, and what I say is true may be different, but if it works for you, that's awesome. That's good. I'm definitely not going to call you out. So you can see the implications then for counseling. We're not going to make judgments on someone else's moral compass. In fact, we should, as the counselor, kind of be at the discretion of whatever moral compass the person we're counseling has. Obviously, the problem. And it doesn't take a, a, a really smart person to figure that out, right? 
Because what happens if the person you're counseling says, you know, I just really feel like uh, killing that guy today. I think we can all agree that's probably not okay moral compass, that he's okay with murder. You see, everyone does have absolutes. It's just a matter of where is your line. We all have them. So fundamentally, it's, it's wrong to think that there are no absolutes to flawed worldview. But all three of these massive ideologies and ways of thinking really have shaped who we are. They're really strong undercurrents, uh, I would say, for the last at least 50 years in our society, with postmodern being the most recent. So these are the operating systems, is what I'm trying to tell you. This is the wisdom of man. I believe there's a different operating system. I think you do too. There's an alternative that has a different foundational authority. Let's call that the wisdom of Let's call it the scriptures. There's a, over here, the Bible is our authority. And, you know, the belief in our camp is that it is sufficient to answer every fundamental problem of the human heart. It's sufficient to do that. Let's read Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. Here's what God through Peter says. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How do you get out of the corruption of the world? How do you escape your sinful desires in the flesh? How do you change we have everything right there that pertains to life and godliness. Last time I checked, that's all we need. Right there in his very great promises. The scriptures are sufficient. This is what Dr. David Pallison says. He says, but as we look more closely at life, it becomes clearer and clearer that the scriptures are about counseling. They're about diagnostic categories, causal explanations of behavior and emotion, interpretation of external sufferings and influences, definitions of workable solutions, character of the counselor, goals of the counseling process. These are all matters to which God speaks directly, specifically, and frequently. God does claim authority over these matters. The scriptures do speak to them. So we see we do have an alternative starting point. It's the very words of God. And and that's where we're going to dive into later with John. That is our foundation for right thinking, for right diagnosing, and for right care for people. So, I want to, my last kind of part here, is walk through four methods of counseling on that spectrum. So on one hand, you have very open to modern psychology. On one hand, you have very not open, very closed to modern psychology. I want to walk through those four methods very quickly. Then we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to turn it over to John. So, method number one, the levels of explanation method. This is a very rare method. Uh, the only place I know of it is Fuller Seminary. I think there's another actual uh, organization I can't remember. Essentially what it says is psychology and biblical theology de- deal in different realms, different worlds. They talk about different things. And so you can have both and they don't overlap, they don't contradict. The problem, of course, with this is that they do overlap. They do. They do speak to the same thing. They both speak to motivations, to sufferings, to abuse, to desire for meaning, to fear. They, they speak to the same thing. They do overlap. There's a philosopher named Alasdair McIntyre. Well, that's a name. Alasdair McIntyre. He, um, he kind of showed that they overlap, and here's how he did it. He said this. He said that science, empirical science, can only describe what is. Uh, that's description. 
but it can never describe or can never actually talk about prescription, what ought to be. You can look at something and say it is this by observance, by test, by measure. I can tell that it is this, but it can never look at something and tell you what it ought to be. Right? And as soon as you move into this realm, the ought realm, that's when you move out of science and you move into religion and values. That's the different realm. And so his point is this. As soon as you move to ought, that is you move to the realm of counseling, it's no longer science. Well, that's exactly what psychology does. It not only observes, but it wants to say what ought. It wants to speak into pre- prescription. McIntyre saying, as soon as you do that, then you overlap. And that's exactly right. They do overlap. That's not very common. Second method is far more common, the integration model. So here's what integration is going to say. Psychology and biblical theology are both looking at the same thing. There we go. They're looking at the same thing. But they're using different tools to get to it. One's using the Bible, and one's using scientific observation. So they really want to seek to combine insights from both, right? Let's take the best of both worlds. All truth is God's truth, right? Here's, here's the criticism. Here's what I would say the problem. A couple problems with this. Number one is it's not very defined. So there's a huge range of integrationist counseling. Because on one hand, you can be very fundamental, fundamentally biblical, but then just kind of takes a few insights and techniques here from counseling or from psychology. Or you can be on the far other side. Your, your base can be psychology, and then you sprinkle a few scriptures on top to make sure it's called Christian. Unfortunately, that is what I've seen most common with integration. Um, now, I don't want to label them all that way, but, but typically it, it drifts a little more towards that realm. So the second problem that I would see is just that, that, that while it wants to critique psychology a little bit, where things don't maybe la- match up with the Bible on the level of practice and techniques, it doesn't critique psychology down at the underlying presuppositional level. It doesn't look at the underlying philosophies that are undergirding psychology. It doesn't start there. It doesn't start with the religious assumptions. And so, man, what ends up happening is though is they end up adopting a lot of psychology that really at, underneath the surface there's more than maybe what they would agree with. Third, Christian psychology. Okay, so moving along the spectrum now, we've got this third one. This is going to totally reconstruct psychology. It's a distinctly Christian psychology. Okay, so here you go. That at its base has fundamental presuppositions and beliefs about human nature that instead originate from a biblical worldview. So this Christian psychology is going to actually address the underlying things of modern psychology and create a new biblical one. So, okay, that's good. It's actually looking at the underlying assumptions and presuppositions. That's good. Here's the criticism I have with them. Um, I think that that in one respect, it really kind of grants a little too much power to the expert. There's a little too much elitism still. You have to get extensive training to be a Christian psychologist. It, you can't be a Christian psychologist unless you go through this, and it's a pretty elaborate thing. And so I think it takes a little bit of a power out of the priesthood of believer um, and, and your ability and your competency to handle the scriptures yourself. And then I, I think second, and this is maybe a little nitpicky, but I think it still uses a lot of the terminology and language. And, and for me, I just, I, I want to get away from that. I don't want to call something a disease. I want to I look at the root of, of it, and I want to call it sin. So I'm going to use a little more biblical language. And so third, or fourth, this is where we get the biblical counseling model. We've arrived to obviously what you can imagine is our preferred model. 
biblical counseling is going to not only address the, the underlying foundational things, but it's going to have the scriptures as totally sufficient authoritative. It's going to empower the layperson, the ordinary believer, the home group leader, the prayer team member, to be able to, to counsel and shepherd. It, it says that addressing in the mere will or thinking or emotions is really only going to superficially help. We've got to get to the heart of the matter. And so, with that though, there's a couple things, uh, briefly as I wrap up, that I would critique even about biblical counseling. And I think we need to grow in our biblical understanding of biblical counseling in these ways. As biblical counseling started, it really became a bit oversimplified. And here's how that played out. Biblical counselors were only exclusively about exhortation. If you've got a problem, that means there's sin. Here's what you need to go do in light of that. Now, a lot of times that is what is true, but they didn't allow a lot for encouragement, for love, for coming alongside someone in the midst of that. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 kind of says it, and I think they ignore a passage like this sometimes. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Okay, there's your exhortation. But encourage the faint-hearted, the weak. Be patient with everyone. You see, there, there's all different kinds of ways to counsel and walk with someone. It doesn't merely mean exhortation. And then the second thing is I think early on in the biblical counseling movement, there was a lot of, because of it operated like this, there was a lot of focus on the behavior and the external actions and less focus on the heart and the internal motivations and at a gospel level. And so it, it's almost just a morality. And I think they've been growing. I think a lot of counselors and foundations like CCEF have been growing that, and that's it's been good to see. But I think that there there is benefit in exploring your past. I think there is benefit in understanding chemical makeups and how uh, physiological factors can affect things. And so I think a lot more biblical counselors are recognizing that. They're recognizing that, you know what, when someone has an idol of their heart, you can't just say, hey, stop making that an idol of your heart. It's a lot more complex than that. It's messy. There's a lot of things that have tangled. There's been years of making that an idol of your heart. And so there's gonna, it's going to take some unpacking to get there. So here's my conclusion. There's two different starting places, right? Well, Tyler, why, why don't we have a balance. All truth is God's truth. There are things we can take from modern psychology. Should we aspire to a balance? I don't think so. I don't. Why? Because psychology is flawed at an underlying worldview level. It doesn't address our purpose, y'all. It can't. It can't tell you what you were made to worship. This is what McIntyre said. He used the example of a hammer. He said, empirical science can tell you a lot about a hammer. But if you ask, what is a good hammer? What, is this a good hammer or not? Well, you don't know unless you know another question. What's a hammer for? You see, you have to, ask, you have to answer that question before you can tell if it's a good hammer or not. A hammer is a terrible tool for surgery. But obviously, it's great for hammering nails. And so you can test things, you can, you can look at the chemical composition of a hammer, you can see how long it is, how heavy it is, but until you know what it's made for, you can't know whether it's a good hammer or not. This is the problem with modern psychology. Science cannot answer the question of human purpose. Therefore, it cannot by itself provide advice about what people ought to do. It can't prescribe. When it does, 
there's foundational, fundamental, religious presuppositions there. You may say, Tyler, I thought there's objective, scientific counseling, right? Isn't that what psychology is? Well, I, I think as soon as you say that this way of thinking, this way of feeling, this way of behaving is better than this one, then that's when you're bringing a faith worldview into the equation. And that's what psychology does. Wait a minute, Tyler. What about the people who even just say they're very non-directive? I'm going to let the counselee figure it out on themselves. I'm going to let what they think is right be what's right. Well, even in that, you're being directive. Even in that, you're, you're saying, you're assuming the humanistic belief that, that, that their own, that they know what is good. They know how to figure it out themselves, and they just need to take responsibility. That, that is still in that. So in everything, my point is this. There is no neutral. There's no neutral. So we have to start with the foundation of the scriptures that answer, why were we created? What is our purpose? What are we here to worship? Because then we can accurately start talking about the, the problem. And then we can accurately and honestly lead people to Jesus, the one who is actually the solution. So, lastly, this is what I'm proposing. An approach to the biblical counseling message. One that's foundation is the scripture, and therefore message is the gospel, which is what John's going to unpack. One that redeems the tendencies of its common pitfalls, some of those critiques I had. One that does not merely address a change of will and behavioral obedience, but grounds repentance at a heart level of unbelief, lack of satisfaction in Jesus. One that seeks to take into account emotions and past influences, so as to more precisely target the root level of heart problems. So we're not ignorant of that. We don't simplify people. One that compassionately comes alongside people to encourage and exhort towards change. And one that encompasses biblical community as a necessary ingredient in transformation along that change. That's what we're after. That's what John and I are proposing today. Let's take a break. John's going to come back up and talk more about what it actually means to apply the gospel. How do you do that? One of the first things that I think about when I think about biblical counseling is this question of um, how do we typically respond to someone when they, when they come to us and they have a need or um, they come to us and, they, and they're broken or they're, they're out of control um, maybe they're suffering. You know, typically our response is, man, you need counseling, or, bro, you, you need help. Or it could be, dude, you need help. Um, yeah, you need some counseling, seriously, come on, man. Um, what does it mean that we say that? I mean, what, what is it that we're actually trying to communicate Maybe we see that the hurt, the pain, the brokenness, the sin that people are in, and maybe out of like, compassion, we, we recognize that they have a real need, but we just don't know what to do. We just don't know how to give them anything. We're just basically clueless. Or it could be just the opposite. Sometimes um, we make judgments of people. We, whether it's a, actually a right judgment or a wrong judgment, we maybe think, you know what, um, yeah, I see you have a, a need here, but um, I, just, I just don't care. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't have time for this. I, don't, I, don't, I, I really, I, I got a busy schedule. I got all of it going on. I'm just so sorry, man. Hey, I know someone else that you can talk to. 
Um, what is it that we're communicating when we talk like that or think that way? Well, one, <clears throat> we're saying that because of our inadequacies, then we have to outsource all of our problems. So uh, a pastor or a professional counselor, maybe we, we go to them because we, we know, oh yeah, they can take care of this. I know how, this guy's got a big problem and I'm going to go take him to my friend over here. Or maybe it's that we look at the issue or the need and we, and we see that there's an actual real problem and we just don't think that there's anything that can be done about it. We're just pretty much like, yeah, there's no, no point in even trying, man. There's just, this is just who you are. This is just how it's going to be. I'm sorry. But the scariest thought for me is that we actually don't care. That we actually just really don't have it in us to care for someone else and, and the needs that they may be expressing to us. That's a scary thought. So throughout God's story, we see that hurt, pain, brokenness, sin, they've, they've been a part of the human experience ever since Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. But we know that Jesus, he came to undo all of that. Okay? And he came to restore all things to himself. Colossians 1, 18 through 20 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So Jesus' work of redemption is full, and it's complete. And, and the implications are so far-reaching that we can't even imagine them. They're so far-reaching for every human being. So when someone expresses a need for counseling, we, we affirm that the gospel addresses everything, every challenge that they're facing, every challenge. So out of that comes several questions like, what is the gospel? And how do you apply it to life? And, and okay, so well, what's the best context for a person who's in need? Um, how can they be in a place where the gospel can actually help them and get them through the issues that they have? So I want to ask the first question, what is the gospel? And I want you guys to participate. So I know some of you all are already facing me, but I want you to quickly, as quickly as possible, um, I'm going to time you. It's going to be a minute. I want you to turn back to your tables, and I want someone, someone to volunteer, just one person, to volunteer to share the gospel with your table. You have one minute. I'm timing you. Ready, set, go. where it's at. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. 
So hopefully that was a fun little exercise to see what knowledge the people at your table. Hopefully there was some good um, thoughts going on about what the gospel is. So what is the gospel? Well, first, the gospel is about Jesus. And from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, we see, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what was, what was I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So at its core, the gospel is about Jesus. Now, you're probably thinking, duh, I know that, okay? That's as simple as it can be. But really, at its core, when we talk about the gospel, when we, we throw that term around, you don't think about other things. We're thinking about Jesus. But it's also biblical. So we can look back just right to the First Corinthians passage where it says, in accordance with the Scriptures. So this is an actual biblical point of the gospel that the gospel is in the Scriptures. In Romans 1, Paul says that the gospel was promised beforehand. In Luke 24, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he opened the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures and he explained to them that everything written about me in the law of, the Mo- and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the, the Old Testament actually informs us about who Jesus is and his uniqueness. We actually learn about Jesus, when he comes into the picture, we actually have a a grasp of who he is because of the Old Testament. They're thinking, what? I mean, no, he comes in in the New Testament. No, actually, he was coming in the Old Testament, and we just didn't maybe have the eyes to see, but hopefully after this you will be. It's also historical. We see in that 1 Corinthians passage that, that Christ actually came and entered into human history. So, when, when, when Paul says that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, he was actually saying that the resurrection of Jesus was a fact. And that you could actually go to people and there was eyewitness accounts of this, this occurrence. Like, it wasn't just an accident that Paul put that. He was intentionally trying to say, like, you, you have a problem? You don't think that the resurrection actually happened? No, that's okay. Just go talk to Jim Bob over here. He knows. Okay, no problem. He knows. He saw it. Well, the gospel is also good news. The good news of what God has done to reach us. Not advice about what we're to to do to get to God. He's coming to us. God has entered the world in Jesus Christ to achieve a salvation that we could not achieve in ourselves. The gospel converts us. It transforms us. And eventually, it's going to renew the whole world. And now that's great news. Because we know that this is a broken world that we live in. So one of the greatest things about the gospel is is that we don't have to come up with creative and unique ways of talking about it or explaining it. Actually, from the Bible, we see a plot line from Genesis to Revelation of the gospel. It does it for us. It's this bigger picture from the gospel, recognizing that the scriptures actually lay this out for us. Beginning in creation. In the beginning, God created everything, and it was good. He created man, and he created woman, and he was in relationship with them, and it was perfect. 
and man and woman, they knew God. They trusted him. They worshiped him alone. They joyfully obeyed him. And man and woman, they also had a perfect relationship. They also had a perfect relationship with nature. So there was no conflict. There was no natural disasters. There was no sin. There was no brokenness. Just perfection. But Adam and Eve, man and woman, they sinned and they rebelled against God. They wanted to define what was good for themselves. They thought, you know what? God is keeping from me what is good. So I'm going to go define it for myself. Their sin broke the relationship that God had with man, with themselves, and with nature. So what was once perfect was now broken and marred by sin. Death came both spiritually and and eventually it came physically. And since that time, all people from birth are sinful and separated from God. We are deserving of his wrath. But God, he sent a rescuer. In his great love, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we should have lived. To die on the cross, a death that we should have died. To rise from the grave and to defeat both sin and death. So that anyone, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus alone and repents of their sin, they will be saved. Jesus takes the penalty of sin, which is death, and it's canceled now. He absorbs the wrath of God, and he puts his righteousness into us. So we now have hope. And we know that God is going to make all things right. We know that Jesus is going to return. And we know that if you have rejected the king, you will be forever banished from the presence of God in hell. Sin will be no more. Brokenness will cease. And Jesus will restore all things to himself. And he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. And those who have put their faith in Jesus, they will be with God forever, worshiping him, enjoying him forever. So from the gospel story, we can ask questions like, what does the gospel say about who God is? His power, His love, His glory. What does the gospel say about who we are? Our dependence, our purpose. And and if we look at the fall, we can look in at Adam and Eve and we can ask, what were they craving? What, What lie were they believing? How was their experience with sin similar to ours? How how did God bring about salvation for sinners? And in light of the gospel, like, what does it look like for us to walk this out in faith and repentance? So how do we apply this to ourselves? How do we take this weighty gospel and we apply it to ourselves? Well, I think, first, most of us do well to understand that when we when we put our faith in Jesus, the penalty of our sin, which was death, was taken by him. And so that, that, that deserving death that we, we were deserving is, is no longer, it's canceled. 
And I, I think at the same time, most of us are pretty, pretty understanding that when we go to be with God for all eternity, that sin is just, it's not going to exist anymore. There's not going to even be a presence of it. So we have these two spectrums. We have one side, we, we understand that we are freed from the penalty of sin, which is death. And the other side, we have this freedom of sin no longer being the presence of God, and we can just enjoy Him forever. But what about now? The problem is that most of us, most Christians, don't understand that the gospel is actually for them too. The same gospel that saves us is also what sanctifies us. So we can ask questions like, how does the gospel apply to my life today? Okay, I was driving to, to church and, and I'm stuck in traffic. How does the gospel apply to the fact that I'm stuck in traffic and I'm going crazy? How does the gospel apply to conflict with my spouse? Or I'm thinking about raising my boys and I'm thinking, gosh, this is just such a huge undertaking. How does the gospel apply to raising children? Or counseling a friend? Or participating in your home group? Timothy Lane and, and Paul Tripp said in their book, How People Change, people need to see that the gospel bring, belongs in their workplace, their kitchen, their school, their bedroom, their backyard, and their van. So, sadly, it's very common in the church to hear this. Yeah, that gospel, that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. You know, I got saved, and, you know, that gospel is for the lost people, and uh, it's what they need to be saved. But, you know, once you're saved, all you've got to do to grow is just you've got to work hard. You just got to work hard and obey. That's all. I mean, it's usually packaged a little bit different. But for me, I, just, I was just trying to be a, a good man. I just wanted to read my Bible more. I wanted to pray more. I wanted to be a good witness. But at its root was this insecurity of not believing that I was accepted by God. I believed that somehow, gosh, if I could just... I missed my day of, of reading and praying. I got to go. Two hours. Here I go. And, and surely that will make it possible for me to be accepted by God. Guys, I'm telling you, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And when I didn't finally come to a place where I wasn't the man that I was hoping to be, I was devastated. I wasn't just discouraged. I was devastated. I was putting my hope in the, the idea that if I could just work hard enough, then surely this would be enough that Jesus could accept me. But that's religion. That's not the gospel. That's religion. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted through Jesus Therefore, I obey. Do you catch that? If I, if I don't forgive someone, it's not simply a lack of obedience. It's really that I don't believe that I'm saved by grace too. 
If I lie to cover something up, it's not a simple obedience problem. It's actually that I don't find my acceptance in God, but in man's approval. Or maybe you've heard someone say something like, oh, don't worry about it. You're just human. We're all under the grace of God. But sin is serious. We're not slaves to our sin anymore. In the gospel, we're free, yes, but we are free to walk in Christ's righteousness, not as old creations, but new ones. Because that, that old guy, he didn't care about sin. We understand that our salvation was bought with blood, not indifference. So please realize this. Both of those viewpoints are wrong. As Tim Keller often says, I am more flawed and sinful than I ever dared believe. Yet I am more loved and accepted than I ever I ever dared hope. I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. So is the gospel enough for you? Is it? The apostle Paul believed it. He believed that we never get beyond the gospel. There's nothing to advance to. There is nothing to advance to. He didn't believe it, that it was just even a step on on a stairway of truths. It was it. The gospel was it. In Romans 1, 16, he said that the gospel is the actual power of God. It's the actual power of God. In Galatians 3, 1 through 3, he said that it's in the gospel that we actually grow in the Christian life. It's in the gospel. In Colossians 1, 6, he said that we are renewed through the gospel. So if you want spiritual renewal or revival, then you must continually rediscover the gospel. So how do we do this? Repent and believe the gospel. Those are Jesus' words in Mark 1.15. It's as simple as that. Repent and believe the gospel. Paul made it clear that Repentance and faith are ongoing in Colossians 2.6 when he said, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. When we repent, we are turning from our sin and anything that we've treasured above Jesus. And in faith, we are trusting in the power of God and the gospel to save us, to grow us, to renew us. The problem is that many times we just want an easy fix from the pain. We just want an easy fix from the brokenness of sin. But that's cheap. In order to experience true change, we need the gospel to take root in our hearts. We may think our problems are external or behavioral, but we're wrong. Jesus said in Mark 7, 18-23, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, the 
the man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So our hearts, they are great indicators of what we treasure or worship. So here's a practical way that I like to apply the gospel to life. This can be done anytime. In fact, I actually encourage you to do this daily. Wake up in the morning and do it first thing in the morning. This can be done when you're being tempted to to fight the lies of the devil. This can be done after we even sin so that we can recognize the seriousness of our sin, the holiness of God, the judgment we deserve, and the beauty of Jesus, which moves us to confession and true faith and repentance. So number one, consider the fruit. Pray to God to help you depend on Him. Ask Him, please identify what this sin is. What is it? What, what did I say? What did I do? What is this sin? So consider the fruit. Number two, pursue the roots. Dive deep to the root. See the sin beneath your sin. Don't, don't be satisfied with just, yeah, Lord, I, I lied. No, what, what, what were your heart's desires when you did that? What, what were you saying? What was I seeking when I thought that way? Um, in you guys' notes, there's uh, x-ray questions. And that, that's going to be a, a huge, huge um, means of grace for you guys as you consider how to think this way. Um, there's just, I think, just 10 of them. But there's actually a whole other document that you can access, I think, to that modernism um, website that you can, there's like 30 or more. Um, but that's going to help you to really unpack and ask deeper questions that are more than just, yeah, I lied. Let's move on. No, what was I saying? What was it that my heart was saying? Number three, own my unbelief. Own your unbelief. What lies were you believing? Where was your hope? When you look at, at these things and you put your hope in them and they didn't fulfill, what, what lie were you believing? That, that they were going to make you happy? Number four, adorn Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus Christ. See that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. See that he died the death that we should have died. Don't don't just talk in general ways. Don't just say, yes, Jesus died for sinners. No, he died for me. See how he did these things specifically for me. Specifically, even though I just committed this heinous act against God, I know that he even died for that sin. He didn't just generally die. He died for my specific areas of my life, the particulars of my life. And he has given me 
righteousness. Put on Jesus and his righteousness. Clothe yourself in his righteousness. Number five, own the results of the gospel. Own the results of the gospel. So I am forgiven. I am accepted. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done for me. I am accepted not because I work hard, not because I don't care, not because of any of those things, but because Jesus and his great love knew me and purchased me with his blood, and I'm accepted. I'm adopted. I'm no longer an alien wandering. I'm a part of the family of God. I can call God Father. I'm free. I'm no longer a slave to my sin. I'm a, I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm not alone. I've got a fellowship of believers. Look at you all. I'm, I'm in this great room of people who I can be with. I'm not alone. And I'm not my old self. I'm a new creation. I am a new creation. That means that old self, it's gone. That's not me anymore. So number six, practice true confession and repentance. And, that, and this, this looks like this. You're basically going back through those one through five and you're just crying out to God with those particulars and you're just saying, Search me. Know me. Reveal to me the things that I don't know about myself. Show me the areas of my weakness that I have missed. Help me to see that it wasn't just that I lied. Help me to see that I was actually believing that something was better than you. Help me to move beyond that, God. Help me to Put on the gospel. Help me to know who I am in light of the gospel, what Jesus has done for me, so that it brings me to change, God. It brings me to a place of which I'm overflowing with joy and love in my heart because I have been loved and I have been served and I have been filled up by the joy of God. Number seven, Live a gospel-motivated life of repentance and faith. See that you are lacking nothing in Christ. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have everything at our disposal. Out of an overflow of, of God's acceptance and love for me, I obey Him joyfully because He is my delight. I don't serve God because I feel like I, I have to fulfill my duty. I serve Him because in my joy, I delight in His name being praised and Him getting glory. Number eight, seek fellowship. So if you haven't already done this, inform godly friends, pastors of your sin, of the things that you're processing so that we can 
work through these things with you so that we can see progress with you. Ask for people to to look into your life and and the conclusions that you've made and you've drawn from and and ask, hey, I need need you to tell me if I'm right or I'm wrong here. I, I, I need to know if this is a legitimate belief, if I've really, really known the gospel through this area of which has just been a stronghold for me. So that last question, it it leads perfectly into the question of context. What is the best context for a person to be where the gospel can help address their issues? We believe that God has designed the body of Christ to meet the needs of its people. And we believe that that's first in home groups. So specifically, we have people who are, are in our home groups and they are congregating around the gospel. They are treasuring the mission of Jesus to make disciples. And because of their great love for his gospel, we, we're able to love and help and serve and sacrifice for others like no other community is out there. When we center our lives around the gospel and these communities, we are able to help the deep needs of people, address them with great effectiveness. As the family of God, we we, we sacrifice for one another. We counsel, we disciple, we nurture. The, The strength and depth of our relationships are a living picture of the power of the gospel. See, we were never called to live alone. We were never called to live in isolation. That's what the enemy wants for us because if we live in isolation, then that means that we are void, void of communication of truth. We lose sight of who God is, who we are, what effect sin has on us. So our number one priority is connecting people with a gospel-centered community. We want you to be a part of this biblical community called a home group here at Summit Church where we believe that it's going to be the best place for any hurting person to experience and know the gospel daily. And we get that from Hebrews 3, which says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you guys see that? Do you see that the beauty of the gospel is for you? It's not just for for you. It's for anyone who in faith trusts Jesus alone and repents of their sins. This same gospel is what's going to change you as well. It's, it's what's going to move you beyond the subpar to the rejoicing with God because of knowing that He has rescued you out of a life of toil and working and Slaving over what? 
nothing but death. Nothing that will produce. No fruit that will come. It will die off. Do you see the best context for this is our home groups. This is the best place in which we, as the family of God, serve and love one another in such a way as to communicate the gospel that we have power. So in concluding our time today, we, we, want, we want to give you guys an opportunity to work this out. Um, we have a couple of case studies that we would actually like you guys at your tables to consider and, and, and ask, what kind of counsel in the gospel would I give to this situation? So just listen with me as I share with you this first case study because we're going to turn to your tables in just a second to discuss it. So Jeff, I don't know if there's any Jeffs in here, but Jeff is a devoted employee who completes his work efficiently and thoroughly. In the past, his manager has asked him to complete special projects, but lately has been assigning these special projects to Mary. Mary asks Jeff for help in completing a minor aspect of the project, and though Jeff has the time to complete the task, He responds by telling Mary to figure it out for herself because he has other things to do. Jeff calls you that evening and shares with you what happened. He can't believe Mary's audacity in asking him for help. What would you counsel Jeff? Obviously a topic that has massive implications and the the arena is huge. So we're not going to cover it all today. We get that. We know that. It's really insufficient what we're doing today, but we want to cover it as best we can. So what questions do you have? What scenarios? What things are you wrestling with? Um, we'll just go ahead and figure it out. Yeah, go on. Uh, I can't help but see somebody in my Bipolar, 
man, who am I to really think that I understand the nuances of that? So, great question. There's definitely things we feel inadequate on. Here, Josh can explain the, the way we see that playing out in a different kind of escalating different levels. Well, first, I think that um, we, we want to express that we are not um, anti-help uh, or anti-assistance or anti-finding um, maybe a, a doctor or someone that could help with uh, an issue that may be beyond our ability. It's a physiological problem. We, we want to express that we are not anti-that. We're just pro-Jesus. So we just want Jesus to be at the forefront of everything that we do. And we understand that this, is, this, this broken world that we live in, it's a result of the fall. Like, physiological problems wouldn't exist if it weren't for the fall. The reality of where we are now is in a not yet moment of we're waiting. We're waiting for the return of Jesus when He's going to make all things new. So to answer your question, honestly, we, we, don't, we don't pretend that we are going to have an answer for every single issue, and especially those that, uh, which are physiological. Um, but we just want Jesus to be made known. And so we want that to even be known for the person that maybe can't fully comprehend. We want them to understand what it is that Jesus means. Not just some general sense, but for them too. Like Jesus coming into history meant that all things now had hope because he came to restore it. And we know that as he comes again, he's going to make it all new. So that's, that's just our, our, our hearts on that. We, we, um, we don't want to ever promote this idea that we are anti that we, we just want we want Jesus to be our forefront is to bring in the pastor step two Lord willing we get elders soon we will is to bring in an elder step three then is we're going to look for more specialized help now when we look for that specialized help obviously that's very important who we go to who we trust for that specialized help. We want someone who is going to have a biblical worldview. Someone who is going to have a gospel-centered approach to things. Um, so yes, we're not anti-help. We are, I think we're, our starting point is always going to be the gospel, though. And we believe that, that it is sufficient. And so there is some overlap there in the medical world. And we'll get into this like when we cover one of the issues, I think, on that, uh, that category involves depression. So that's a huge question. Are you open to medication? Are you not open to and we'll cover that. We'll send you some good resources on what we believe about that. Uh, but ultimately, w- what we're saying is that everything originates as a spiritual problem. There may be physical, physiological, mental um, manifestations of that problem. And we would expect that there would be, right? Um, now, when things are actually at the root, a physiological problem, a medical problem, then, yeah, we're not going to act like we have the expertise in, in that realm. So, there's some gray areas there that are tough. I mentioned bipolar. That's one that's very tough. I don't fully understand what, I, what exactly the root is of that. And I think that a lot of people don't. 
So that's a, that would be one that would be a great area that I would say, like, man, I, I need help on. You know what I mean? So does that answer your question, Phil? Do you feel like that gives you a good... Sure. I mean, we, we kind of look at it that as a, a means of grace for that person to get well. What we want them first and foremost, though, is to treasure Jesus so that when it comes time and they are better, we don't want them to be, but I, I still need this. Jesus isn't enough anymore. I need Jesus plus this. That's, that's all we're, we're saying. We, we want that understanding of who Jesus is to be so precious to us that all these other things they're just means of grace they're just opportunities for us to be healed maybe in in some small fashion in order that we can get past tomorrow or um, be healed from maybe cancer or something like that Um, we we want to promote first the gospel and Jesus so, other questions? Yes, Angie? Yes, yeah, so one of, one of his jobs is going to be to build out a list. Um, we have a list right now. But we, don't know, we don't know those people on that list inside and out. And so it's hard for me to, to say, man, I really trust this person. I don't know this person. I've been given a recommendation for them, but I don't actually know what operating system they're working on. Uh, and so right now, uh, we, we don't. We would love help, and if you could offer some assistance in that, that would be great. There's just a few things I think that we want um, when we consider um, finding someone to help us or assist us is just Simply, are they willing to work with us? Are they willing to work with our, our, our pastors, our elders? Are they willing to um, see that we actually have the responsibility of oversight for the individual that they don't and that they're willing to work alongside us? Um, so that's just, I mean, we, that will kind of be a mindset or avenue of which when we consider these things and people um, that's, that's kind of what we'll be thinking through as we go there. So, keep it coming. Um, is there something specific you want to ask about that? Sorry, maybe. Are you coming in? How do you as a home group leader perhaps counsel another parent in the, home, in the group whose children are dealing with things? That's a great question. Do you have an answer for that? Uh, do, you, do you have a relationship with them, the parents? Okay. Um, I think a lot of times that 
when we go in believing um, that this is, this is the fix, like this is going to make it happen, um, we're going to see that it may not work and it's going to fail. So we're not, we're not giving you something that is fail-proof. Like we're, we're, we're trying to promote the gospel and Jesus and what we believe is, is the way in which we can experience change and growth for, for godliness. Um, and so what we would hope then would be the response of a parent who maybe are um, learning some of these things for the first time is that they would be as humble and as willing to learn as, as you guys are and willing to receive instruction just as much as you are willing to receive instruction from Todd when he, when he preaches every Sunday. So just as a matter of bathing that in prayer and considering um, the sensitivity that sometimes parents may be not receiving um, instruction very well, saying, who are you to try to parent my, my children? I know what's best. You know, we just want to put that aside and just say, look, because of the gospel, I recognize that I don't have it all together either. In fact, I know I don't. In fact, look at who I am apart from Jesus. But look at who we are together because of Jesus. And as a result, look at what we can be because of Jesus. So hopefully that is a, a means to deflate any particular uh, thing that could arise from a conversation like that. Yeah, I would just, I mean, um, your goal is to help those parents disciple and train their children just as you would your children, right? And so, yeah, there's some sensitivities to be aware of. We as parents are protective and get defensive a lot, like you said. But as much as you can, you know, just to graciously put those things before. If you don't know how to deal with it, if it's an issue that, man, I, I don't even know if my own kid had this, how I would deal with it. Well, that's when, you know, come ask us for help. And if, if we don't know, then we'll go up for more help. And so. One more. No one wants to be the last one. The last cookie. I don't want to take the last cookie. Go for it, Patrick.
Uh, so are you, are you asking about maybe like an integrationist approach, or are you asking more about the levels of explanation? Yeah, okay, great question. Um, and clearly, you have the pedigree to ask it. Um, and I don't feel that I have the pedigree to answer it, but I will try. I wouldn't say worthless. Uh, those who aspire, or those who aspire, those who adhere to biblical counseling method would say they're extremely cautious of using modern psychology techniques. And that is because of what we already talked about with the underlying assumptions and philosophies that are driving that. So, uh, maybe you could give me a good example. An example that I would think of, okay, is it helpful to use some of the psychological studies about how to interrogate someone? You know, when someone breaks and how to actually read them. I think so. I feel like that would be valuable, right? Is there anything going on in that about diagnosing human problems and prescribing solutions? I don't think so, unless I'm missing something. So. In that arena, is that valuable to take what research has brought us from that? So that we can apply that and how to interrogate a terrorist? I think so, yeah. And maybe that's a terrible example. That's just what came to my mind. Um, I think about that. I don't know. I watch 24, okay? <laughs> um, I don't think that biblical counselors would, re would reject 100%. Now, I know of plenty of biblical counselors who have their LPC, who have their PhD. They've, they've, they've gone that route and they became a biblical counselor. I've heard, I've heard both sides. I've heard guys say, you know what, I would do it again. I would go back, I would get my PhD again. I would still have this because having this knowledge has really helped me filter everything now. And I, and I understand completely where these people who aren't even believers are coming from, as well as those who are believers but are still drawn to the psychology. I, if I can see the landscape a lot better. I can siphon out what is of merit and what is not. What is all truth is God's truth and what is not, right? Um, and I've, I've also heard biblical counselors go, no, if I had to go back, I would not spend that time getting my degree. I would not go through that training. Those who uh, say that, their argument to, that I've heard is that it takes such a level of discernment and wisdom from the Holy Spirit. It's not impossible, but it takes such a great degree of that to be able to tease out those things that sound good, but are actually built on, on premises that are fundamentally flawed, it's so hard to discern that and go, man, that sounds good, but I think that is actually not okay because underneath that is a worldview that says it's about, everything is about the freedom of man or everything is about, whatever that is. It's very difficult to discern that. And so I think that's where most biblical counselors will go. That's why we're very cautious. That's why we don't want to even... Um, play a whole lot with that realm because the amount of discernment is required to be able to tease those things out at a philosophical and underlying assumptions level man I just don't I don't know that I can do that so Christian psychology would say they could do it that's you know that other method they say sure like let's just go ahead and refabricate our own psychology and absolutely 
we, we believe we have the expertise and ability to look psychology up and down and go, yeah, this is worthy of keeping, this is worthy of not. Me, I don't know that I do. So I'm going to, I'm going to be very cautious. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Not satisfactory. It's okay to, uh, it's okay to disagree, you know? And we can talk more offline if you want, Patrick. I did say that was the last question. I guess we should end. <laughs> uh, let me pray briefly over you and thank you for coming.